1: June 16th, 2023. This week, police announce a breakthrough in the Terra Calico case. Harvard is the best place to buy human brains. And uh, the zombie hunter is sentenced to death. All this and more. Stay tuned.
0: Yes. Super excited. We are all pumped to have James Renner. Arthur James
1: Renner. On. That James Renner has zeroed in. James Renner's once again drops a bombshell. Investigative James journalist Renner. reporter James Renner, who's been on the podcast a long time. By a line. Writer, James back. Back. James Renner. All right, welcome back to True Crime This Week with James Renner. That's me. There's a little bell. Uh, hey, just a reminder every time, I don't know if you know this, it's, it's been a while since I mentioned this, but every time you rate this podcast, an angel gets its wings. It's true. Do what you can. Just a reminder: my new true crime book, Little Crazy Children, is really is being released June 27th. We're so close. Uh, pre-orders are now set. You can pre-order it online, anywhere books are sold. I'm doing the audiobook as well. That'll be available June 27th. You can get it on the Kindle. However, you take your medicine, you know? However you like it. Uh, It's available June 27th. So check it out, Little Crazy Children, it's on the unsolved murder of Lisa Pruitt, crazy case. Let's get to the top stories. On Tuesday, police in New Mexico announced that they will present evidence in the Terra Calico case to the DA. Now, I hate to be a party pooper, but something is seriously not right here. But first, let's break down this story. Tara Calico was 19 years old when she disappeared near her home in Belen, New Mexico, on September 20th, 1988. Tara went for a—this is kind of a well-known case in the true crime circles. You may know some parts of this. Um, Tara went for a bike ride that day, as she did almost every day. It was kind of a routine she had with her mother. They'd go on these bike rides, but her mother stopped going on these rides because she— she had this feeling that she was being stalked during these rides, that she thought maybe a car had doubled back and was passing them again. She just felt a little weird about it, so she didn't go. Her, her daughter still went though, and then she, she never came home. Police searched for Tara, but all they found was her Sony Walkman on the side of the road, busted, the cassette tape was nearby. Tara's body and her bike were never found. Now, there's another part of this, and like I said, it's a big case in true crime. Um, wow, you can hear the thunder, right? It's, it's storming in Akron, but we're doing this live. We gotta, we're got we going. We're, we're going to keep going uh, <laughs> until the power goes out. So there's this other part of the Terra Calico case that you might be aware of, and it involves this creepy Polaroid uh, photograph. In 1989, it's a year after almost a year after she went missing. A Polaroid uh, photograph was found in the parking lot of a convenience store in Port Port St. Joe, Florida, quite a ways away from home. The photograph shows a young woman, and and I'm going to show you this picture. It's creepy, but here it is. The photograph shows a young woman and a boy bound and gagged in the back of a white van. Tara's mother firmly believed that the woman in the photo was Tara, The woman even seemed to have a scar on her leg, the woman from the picture that was identical to the one that Tara had. Scotland Yard analyzed the photograph. They also agreed that this was Tara. The boy in the photo resembled Michael Henley, a young boy who had gone missing in New Mexico as well. But his remains were found in New Mexico in 1990 after this picture was taken, not far from where he disappeared, and police now do not believe it was him in this photo. Now, in the age of social media, um, nobody has come forward to say, oh, look, that was me and my younger brother. We were playing. It was a prank. Um, We thought it was funny at the time. Whoever these people are, if they are not Tara and Michael or Tara and somebody else, they still haven't been identified. It would be great if we could put that to rest. But that part of it is still a mystery, too. Which brings us to this week. Valencia County Sheriff Denise Vigil held a press conference to announce that she was submitting reports to the DA for charges in Tara's disappearance. Um, Quote, I personally was not sure I would ever see the day of a significant breakthrough, but I stand before you confident of the findings in this case, says Sheriff Vigil. Now, there was a lot of celebration online about this, but Personally, I'm very concerned about this press conference, and I'll tell you why. This is simply not how it's done. This is not what you do. Police don't hold press conferences to announce that they've solved the case before a suspect is charged, before they're indicted, before they're arrested. None of that has happened, but the police have held this press conference to say, oh, hey, we we solved the case, now we're giving it to the DA. Something's very fishy about this. One reason I can see for doing this, and this is just a little conjecture, is because they're not confident that the DA will bring charges. This press conference, what it did was put pressure on the DA to follow in lockstep with the police who have publicly announced that they've now solved the case. Um, It's a way to put pressure on the DA to go along with them. Maybe they already know that the DA doesn't want to, that there may not be enough evidence, Remember, Tara's still missing. There was not an announcement that her body was found. That means that probably what they're presenting is uh, likely to be a no-body homicide case. They're like, oh, hey, we know it, but we still don't know where her body is. Those cases make up like 0.05% of all cases in the United States every year. They're very, very rare because it's hard to get a conviction in those no-body homicides because it's an easy defense. Well... Where's the body? If they did it, where's the body? Where's the evidence? So, um, I'm not celebrating this announcement just yet. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, again, this is not normal action. This reminds me, actually, a lot of the Lisa Pruitt case from Little Crazy Children. Uh, In that case, they didn't have any evidence against this suspect named Kevin Young, who was the, the weird kid in school that everybody pointed fingers to after Lisa was murdered and um they they went after him anyways and the police in that case held these press conferences saying look we know it's Kevin Young we just don't have enough evidence to arrest him it was ridiculous it's a way to try the case in public so uh and by the way this is not the first time that the sheriff the sheriff's office in that county has overstepped their bounds uh back in 2008 the former sheriff Rene Rivera came forward to say that He believed um, Calico was run over by two teenage boys and then she was killed when they panicked and presented really no concrete evidence to support that. So be careful with that one. Ted Kaczynski, known to the world as the Unabomber, died by suicide last Saturday. Now, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and it it was weird. It was a weird time. We kind of had this Batman, Riddler figure in real life who was mailing these bombs to professors and other people and they would open these packages and it would explode and he injured 23 people, killed three and just terrorized the United States for decades. The bombings began in 1978 and continued until 1995. It was then that Kaczynski mailed a 35,000-word manifesto to several news outlets, and he said, look, I'll stop killing people if you publish my manifesto. And they did. The Washington Post printed it in its entirety on September 19, 1995. Now, this manifesto was actually, it led to his undoing because Kaczynski's brother recognized some parts of it from conversations he'd had with his sibling over the year. Yeah, the brother eventually went to the FBI and said, look, I'm pretty sure this is my brother. He lives in this cabin up in Montana, doesn't have electricity, no running water. And they went and checked him out. And sure enough, they found all the evidence they needed inside that cabin, arrested Kaczynski, and uh, yeah, he's been in prison ever since. Kaczynski was a brilliant mathematician, a child prodigy. He actually enrolled at Harvard at the age of 16. Now, a couple things that happened to him as a child might have actually inspired the terrorist he became. When he was only six six months old, he got sick. He had hives all over his body. His parents took him to the hospital where the doctor kept him isolated for weeks. His mother could only visit him two two times a week, two hours at a time. And when he returned from the hospital, he was totally changed, his parents said, and did not want to make eye contact with anybody. Um, what a sad... Part of that story, right? Like you need, as a especially as a as a baby, as a as a toddler, as an infant, you need your mother, and and to be separated like that surely had some sort of an effect. Then at Harvard, Kaczynski became he was a subject in a psychological experiment that a um, a person who worked for what became the CIA was in charge of. This really happened. Uh, he was part of this psychological experiment where. He was, um, they were studying rage and anger, and he was subjected to weekly verbal attacks. They were trying to see what sort of response it would provoke in him. This went on for three years. And remember, he's 16, 17, 18 years old at the time. Broke his mind. Uh, Kaczynski was convicted in 1998, serving eight life terms, life in prison without the possibility of parole, he was. Um, he was being held at a Supermax facility in Colorado. The cellmate next to him for quite a while was uh, Tim McVeigh, who you know, blew up the building in uh, Oklahoma. Um, TMZ reports that Kaczynski hanged himself in his cell. Now, TMZ is the only one that I can find that's really reporting the cause of death being hanging, but it is agreed that he likely committed suicide one way or another. He was found dead at 12.23 a.m., now, since his death, there. what's interesting to me is there are a number of articles and opinion pieces that have been written that have taken another look at his manifesto, and everybody's like, well, think of him what you will, but this guy had had a point. Like, what he's saying has has come true. He was very prescient uh, about his views on society and what was going wrong. Um, he spoke about what is now considered woke culture. Uh, it's as well as the dangers of AI, and how the Industrial Revolution ruined this planet. And here are the closing lines. I'll leave you with this. These are the closing lines of the op-ed piece written by Adam Kirsch at the Wall Street Journal this week. Quote, Theodore Kaczynski became the Unabomber because he believed that only spectacular violence could gain a hearing for his idea. Uh, If we had ever done anything violent and had This is, now he's quoting... Uh, Kaczynski, quote, uh, if we had ever done anything violent and had submitted the present writings to a publisher, they probably would not have accepted. In order to get our message before the public with some chance of making a lasting impression, we've had to kill people, end quote. Now, um, Kaczynski would often refer to himself as we as as a way to kind of throw off investigators making them think it was an organization instead of just one person. So any, and, and so here Kirsch ends with this, almost 30 years later, it turns out that all he needed to do was wait. He didn't need to kill anybody. He just needed to wait a little while for society to catch up to his ideas. And, and we're pretty much open to those ideas at the moment. Final top story this week, and then we'll move on to cold case updates. I've got lots after the break, but uh, here's the final big story. On Wednesday, a federal grand jury indicted five people for stealing and selling body parts from Harvard Medical School, according to Vice. Included in, these, uh, included in the indictment, uh, here a couple people that were indicted, uh, was one Cedric Lodge, who was the morgue manager at the Harvard Medical School, and his wife, Denise, as well as a woman named Katrina McLean, who's the owner of an oddities shop in Massachusetts, in Salem, Massachusetts, actually. Uh, now, uh, people donate their bodies to this medical school, and the feds are alleging that Lodge was taking heads, brains, faces, and skin, and selling them to McLean so she could then resell them out of her oddities shop. And McLean paid Lodge over $37,000 using PayPal. I didn't know there was that big of a market. Like, who's buying this stuff? Um, other than Nicholas Cage, probably. But, like, seriously. Like, who's walking into that shop and, like, hey, do you have any human skin or, like, brain? It's weird. Uh, I, guess, I, I guess that happens. Salem, it makes sense, I guess. And anyways, that's how they caught them, this PayPal. Because... Uh, McLean would actually write in the memo lines things like head number seven or brains, spelled out like that, brains. Um, Here's a quote from U.S. Attorney, uh, sorry, United States Attorney Gerard Karam, who said in this press release, quote, some crimes defy understanding. The theft and trafficking of human remains strikes at the very essence of what makes us human. It is particularly egregious that so many of the victims here volunteered to allow their remains to be used to educate medical professionals and advance the interest of science and healing. I'll need to end up in an odd shop. I added to that last part. Um, now, the lesson to be learned here is you never, ever write in the memo line what you're actually buying with these cash apps. It's like rule number one. What a rookie mistake. That's why I always write, not drugs when I order pot from my dealer. They can't catch you then. It's not drugs. You've wrote it in the memo line. So food for thought. Uh, (laughs) I've got some uh, cold case updates coming to you. They solved the David Evans case. I wanna talk to you about that at a Boardman. Um, We gotta get to the zombie hunter. More to come after this break.
0: Please hang up and try again.
1: Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... Hi, I'm Alexa Dow with The Porchlight Project, a new nonprofit dedicated to funding DNA testing and genetic genealogy for cold cases in the state of Ohio. For our first case, we assisted the Cuyahoga Falls Police Department, funding new DNA tests on evidence from the 1987 unsolved murder of 17-year-old Barbara Blatnick. That information was given to expert genealogists who traced the genetic markers to a man named James Zastonic, who was arrested in May of 2020 and charged with Barb's murder. Our goal at the Porchlight Project is to entirely fund three to four cold case investigations every year. Each new case costs about $6,000 to complete, which is a small price to pay for closure. The Porchlight Project relies on generous donations from the public. Even $5 can help us solve a murder. For more information on how to help, please visit porchlightonline.org.
1: And we're back with Stingray, starring Nick Mancuso. Cold case updates for you. Here's a cold case that's close to home that I've been watching forever. So earlier this year, police in Boardman, Ohio, announced that they had solved the 1972 homicide of 12-year-old Brad Bellino using genetic genealogy. It's a very popular case from out here, cold case. They announced the killer as one Joseph Norman Hill, who lived in the area in 1972, at the time of Bellino's murder, but he moved to California in 1978. Now, there was a very similar, after this announcement, everybody in Boardman, Ohio, Northeast Ohio, they're like, okay, you got Bellino, but what about David Evans? You know, we knew. Here's the story. There's a very similar death that occurred a few years after Bellino. On January 18th, 1975, that's when 13-year-old David Evans went missing. He was found dead in a backyard not far from Bellino's house. Now his death was initially ruled accidental. The kid had diabetes. It looked like maybe he had wandered out of the house, uh, maybe got confused and, and then died from the elements after not being able to get his diabetes medication. So they, it, it was thought that his diabetes contributed to his death. They took another look at this and they're like, no, there's some fractures here. It looks like he suffered some injuries before and after his death. Anyways, the proximity and the similarity always made police and boardmen wonder if these weren't connected. So they retested the evidence in the case and they found DNA, uh, a DNA profile they were able to get from David Evans' underwear. Sure enough, last week police announced that this DNA profile also matches Joseph, Joseph Nor- Norman Hill. This according to The Vindicator. So now we know Hill was a serial killer operating in Ohio for a time before he moved to California in 1978. I would think there's likely to be more victims here. It can't just be these two that we already caught him on. Um, Unfortunately, he died in 2019 from natural causes. So um, maybe he'll be linked to further murders in the future. The so-called zombie hunter has been sentenced to death, according to CBS News. Brian Patrick Miller was convicted in April for the deaths of Angela Brasso and Melanie Burnus. Both murders occurred along the Arizona Canal in North Phoenix in the 90s. Angela Brasso was 21 years old when Miller knocked her off her bicycle, stabbed her, dragged her off the trail. Her decapitated body was found near the bike trail. Melanie Burness was just 17 years old when Miller killed her. Her body was found floating in the canal. DNA evidence linked those two cases together, but it took them a while to then link those, uh, that profile to Miller. They were able to link him in 2015. His defense right away was insanity. It, It took years before he was found mentally competent enough to stand trial for this. Um, and it is tough, right? Like, I think about these these horrific cases, you know, like this, we're talking decapitation, just brutal, brutal stuff. Anyone who, who would act that savagely must be insane, right? Like, that's almost the definition of insanity, acting like that. Um, so, but we need justice, right? Like, you know, this is one of the things I've explored in the philosophy of crime and like, do they? How much culpability do they have if they are legitimately insane? It's it's rough to find the balance there, but um, they did get justice in the case, and he has now been sentenced to death in Arizona. I got some good news here. Remains found outside Plainview in 1982 have been identified, uh, thanks to the DNA Doe Project. This out of Plainview, Texas. Deborah Mackey's case had remained unsolved for over four decades, leaving investigators in the community searching for answers. In 1982, authorities initially misidentified Deborah's race as Caucasian, which led to significant challenges in identifying the body. Known as Plainview, Jane Doe, 1982. The remains discovered along a dirt road were badly decomposed and missing her skull, but it was clear to authorities that she was the victim of foul play. A skull found at another location was believed to belong to Jane Doe's remains and was even buried with her in 1982. But after exhuming the remains in 2015, authorities determined the skull was actually from another person. They reached out to the DNA Doe Project in 2018 to try using DNA to identify to, to learn her identity. The challenging biological sample sent nearly, spent nearly a year in the labs before a workable DNA profile was developed and research into Jane Doe's family tree could begin. The DNA Doe project played a vital role in resolving this case, but not in the usual way. One of the first tasks for the team was to evaluate the possible race and ethnicity of the DNA profile. They quickly concluded this Jane Doe was in fact African-American. Not Caucasian as investigators originally thought. Now, once the police had that info, they went back to Namus, the database, and that turned up Deborah Mackey's missing persons record. And this led to um, uh, this lead was provided to the Texas Department of Public Safety, and they were able to confirm that through further testing and, and genealogy. So, kind of a roundabout way to solve that one, but nicely done DNA DOE project. Let's move on to weird news. I've got a weird one for you this week. Here's a question for you. You're a 28-year-old woman from Honduras with little money and and a desire to learn English so that you can survive in this strange new new country. What do you do? Well, how about you pretend to be a high schooler and go to English class? That's what happened in St. Charles Parish recently. Sheriff deputies there arrested a 28-year-old woman who had been posing as a 17-year-old girl in order to learn English at a neighborhood high school. They also arrested her mother, who helped her present fake documents to enroll her into the school. Now, teachers there said she was a great student, didn't get into any trouble, and did her work. Um, so, you know, it's it's a small crime here. You can understand it. Uh, I, personally, I, I kind of respect the initiative involved here, but I think local libraries will help you out, and there are certainly YouTube tutorials. There are easier fixes for this. So hopefully, hopefully this woman gets her classes and, and is able to move on. Uh, over to pop culture, I'm going to tell you about this sort of true crime documentary. It, it, it is true crime, um, but it's one that was off my radar for a while, and I just heard about this. I love everything about it, not just because it features a dog. Uh, who doesn't like a cute dog as, as the main character? Um, so here it is. It's Gunther's Millions. It's on Netflix. you got to check it out. Uh, it's a four-part docuseries which uh, begins by recounting the story of a German doctor who made a fortune in pharmaceuticals in the 80s. He provided his wife, a countess, and their son a life of comfort and ease. But when their son died by suicide after struggling with depression... The only heir to their $400 million fortune was the family dog, a German shepherd named Gunther. The empire the countess left behind and the long line of uh, Gunther's bred from the original was left to family friend Maurizio Mian, an Italian celebrity known for tenuous ties to the mafia and an entourage of reverent followers. Gunther's Millions chronicles the last 30 years... Of Mian's exploits, from setting up offshore accounts to buying Madonna's old real estate, uh, real estate, to elaborate social experiments involving boy bands and bikinis, are those two? Are those two separate things? Or are we talking boy bands in bikinis? I don't know. Probably separate. And all this under the watchful eye eyes of Gunther's chaotic canine empire. I'm in. You sold me. You got me at boy bands and bikinis. I want to take that back, please. <laughs> um, okay, finally, uh, the book this week. It's not from the shelf, um, but it's a book uh, by a friend of mine, Alan Prendergast. I'm going to show you the image right here. Um, now, Alan was in Dallas with me last weekend for a mini convention through the Dallas Public Library. We had a we had a fun time. He's got this new book out. You should, you should check it out. It's called Gangbuster. Here's the write-up. A decorated hero of the Great War. It's historical true crime, you know, in the vein of, like, Devil in the White City type of thing. Uh, and I know some people are very passionate about the historical true crime. This is a good one. A decorated hero of the Great War, Philip Van Sice came home to Denver, Colorado, only to find his town in the grip of mobsters, bootleggers, and bunco artists. Using electronic surveillance and other tactics that were decades ahead of their time, he busted up a crime ring that had been thriving in Denver for years, and then launched another undercover operation against an even greater threat, the Ku Klux Klan, which was in the process of taking over state government. Drawing on a rich trove of investigative records, Gangbuster takes you... Uh, takes a you or their approach to a dramatic but neglected chapter in the annals of gang busting. I didn't realize that Denver had such a big Ku Klux Klan deal. I never associate that with like those those states in the in the mountain area. I always just think of that as a southern thing. But apparently the Ku Klux Klan essentially took over Denver back in the day. Um, so, anyways, check it out, Gangbuster Alan Prendergast. Um, and uh, that, that's the news for this week, the, true, the best true crime for this week, anyways. There's all sorts of other news. We didn't even get to Trump. Um, so, uh, anyways, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. It's the weekend. Go out and celebrate. Uh, weekends are always uh, time to celebrate, and, and, you know, when you hit Friday, you know you're there, and that means, in the words of the incomparable Murray Saul, the godfather of Cleveland radio, we got to, got to, got to gotta Gotta, gotta- gotta got Get down. Damn it. True Crime this week is a fearful symmetry production. Photo and artwork are licensed through Shutterstock. If you like the cut of my jib, I have another podcast you might enjoy called "The Philosophy of Crime," in which I attempt to solve the big questions behind our true crime obsession by looking to philosophy for answers. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.